0: find the link in the description notes to learn how you can invest. If tenants want to
1: put in their own throw rugs and so forth in their bedrooms, I mean absolutely knock yourself out. But uh, as a landlord, you want something hard on the surface, which means wood, bamboo, tile, luxury vinyl plank, tile those are you know all acceptable good materials to use depending on you know the kind of units you're trying to create. Um, you know, So go with something that's going to last in their flooring because the price is not that different, um, but the operating efficiency of something hard uh, really matters.
2: Welcome to Ride Around Real Estate, the show about how to passively invest like a pro. On each episode, I interview real estate experts who give their top investing advice, strategies, and tools, and I break down their insights into practical steps to avoid the pitfalls and make better investments. I want to help you passively invest like a pro. This is Ritter on Real Estate, and I'm your host, Kent Ritter. Hello, fellow investors. Welcome to another episode of Ritter on Real Estate, where we teach you how to passively invest like a pro. Today, my guest is Dave Holman, and Dave's been a real estate investor since 2011. He's a broker with REMAX Riverside, and he specializes in commercial and investment property. He also co-owns 94 rental units in Southern Maine. And he enjoys working with owners, residents, and contractors to solve problems and improve communities. And something, one way that he does that, which we're really going to focus on today, is around energy conservation. So really excited uh, to learn more about this myself and and how you can help us as investors and owners uh, save some dollars and, and also improve the environment.
1: So Dave, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to be here.
2: Yeah, so before we dig in, tell us, a little bit more about who you are and where you came from, and maybe how how energy conservation led you to real estate, or real estate led you to any energy conservation, and how this all came about.
1: Sure thing. Yeah, born in Portland, Maine. Uh, grew up in Maine, then uh, traveled out to Minnesota for college, and spent the next four years after that uh, down in Bolivia in South America, starting a chain of uh, camping stores and bookstores. So kind of odd background, but while I was at a college, um, I learned a lot about energy conservation. My major was environment and technology studies. Um, so started uh, learning about architecture, the built environment and how that really matters. You, you know, 40% of global emissions are linked to real estate. You know, whether it's building new buildings or operation of existing ones, that's the biggest chunk of any, you know, factor component to, you know, climate change essentially. So that got my wheels turning. um, But I didn't do anything with it until much later. You know, I, I, after starting this chain of stores, I I came back to the US, got my MBA, um, and started working in nonprofit leadership, fundraising, that kind of thing. And now I'm fundraising for real estate. You know, I started uh, investing, you know, when um, a friend of mine uh, became a syndicator, and, and I had no idea what it was all about about but learned about it through him and through you know being a passive investor and it really excited me it's like wow they can you know pool people's money generate a profit with it and create these amazing buildings that are very healthy to live in they're very uh, low energy to operate you know they're just going to be great great places to live for probably hundreds of years years in the future and i think that's a really you know impactful thing to do so started buying you know little buildings with friends and family as investors and then kind of worked my way up to syndication of larger uh existing historic buildings here in maine um and we're now doing our first uh, new construction project about a 57 unit building
2: oh very cool so you, you've done a lot kind of a, a different mix of things and so let, let's talk about it, maybe, maybe from a couple of, of different viewpoints, right? So, energy conservation—you uh, know—I think it means something very different in a pre-existing building and what you're able to accomplish versus that that new build. So maybe we split that up and we kind of say, okay, if you've you've got this building, right? You, you've made this investment; it's already there. You know, there's opportunities to to conserve energy and save on utilities and and also help the environment. So. How do you go about, uh, what are some of the things uh, that you do? How do you approach that problem?
1: Yeah, I, I kind of define it as like uh, the old buildings are fixing other people's mistakes and the new buildings are where you get to make your own mistakes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, especially in the Northeast with existing buildings, um, they were not all designed, you know, with energy efficiency in mind. And they were designed with totally different energy systems. You go down in the basements, you'll find like a coal shoots and, you know, places where the coal furnaces, you know, were kept mm-hmm. and so forth. Um, then we went to oil and that's where a lot of, you know, Maine is still unfortunately at. Um, a lot of the oil burners have been converted to gas and now uh, people are abandoning both of those and going to heat pumps. And that's kind of the first uh, technological, you know, tip that I'll give people is that heat pumps are pretty much always the right thing to do. Uh, I I thought I was convinced by a a few mechanical engineers otherwise, and and I've deeply regretted it um, because they really are a better technology than any of our central furnace kind of capacities. They put control in the tenant's hands over both heating and cooling. They uh, diversify your risk points. So if you're heating a five or 10 unit building with one gas furnace, and it goes down, you're screwed and you're going to be paying for hotel rooms for people for a couple of days, at least until, Mm -hmm. you know, you get a team in there to put in a new one. Whereas if you have 10 heat pumps in that building and one of them goes down, you just, you know, buy your tenant a heat fan or two, keep them limping along until a week or two later, you can get a new heat pump or get the current one fixed, which actually has rarely ever happened uh, for our situation. Plus tenants are able, they're usually paying their own electric bill. So in a lot of cases, if you have a building where the landlord is paying five, $10,000 a year for heating, um, you go and install this amenity for tenants, which is a heat pump. You link it to each of their electric meters and voila, you've just, you know, taken out five or 10 grand of your expenses, which could be a hundred or 200 grand of building value that you've just added, you know, depending on your cap rate, you know, in the area. So it's a hugely impactful thing to be able to lower your expenses Heat pumps are far more efficient than even natural gas, you know, just in terms of energy and energy out, um, you know, better for the environment. They have the potential to be totally carbon neutral if you're using solar, you know, generate the electricity that heat pumps use. That's pretty rare to see. But, you know, as the grid over the next decades gets greener and greener, those heat pumps are going to get greener and greener as well, you know, as they get better sources of power. So that's one great way. Um, yeah, another, actually, so, so just ahead. starting. Oh,
2: uh, just to sum up. So, just starting with uh, kind of the 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 system for heating the property, right? And 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 there's multiple. It's got kind of for, the force fed, you know, typical old furnace. Um, and your recommendation is go for a heat pump product instead.
1: Exactly. If you can get those financed, either through a construction loan, sometimes the installation companies will offer financing. Um, I've done that numerous times and it's great. I mean, you really are the ROI on doing that is usually like a hundred percent or more per year and it's permanent, you know, it's a permanent thing to do. So yes, it's a high upfront cost, but there's a federal you know, tax credit, there's uh, state incentive programs and rebates. There's a lot of different programs out there that can assist you, um, you know, with, with energy efficiency upgrades like this. And they, you know, in the era of COVID, they have, you know, filters in them and they're cleaning the air, you know, as they're um, operating. So they're great for people with allergies and, and so forth.
2: Yeah. Interesting. Well, very cool. Okay. So that's kind of the heating element of, of the property. That's one way to go about it. And what else were you going to mention?
1: Yep. Um, so another great way that is the least sexy thing ever is just insulation. If you're a landlord who is kind of stuck paying any heating bills at all, um, you probably want to think about insulation, and that's going to be your best kind of bang for your buck uh, investment. And a lot of times in the Northeast, I see you know heating fins in basements to. Keep Keep the pipes from freezing because the basement is so poorly insulated, and there's you you can see daylight through the foundations in different places or by the windows. And all you have to do is get you know, get the structural element repaired, get a spray foam company to come and do at least down to the frost line, if not the entire wall. Um, and that basement will stay 55 degrees even in the coldest of, of times if it's well sealed. You don't have to be heating it, you can lose your oil burner or gas burner furnace, which was kicking off waste heat that just heated the basement and kept the pipes from freezing, yeah. uh, you know, de facto. And if you insulate it, you're done. You don't need to heat that basement anymore. You save thousands of dollars a year. Again, the, the ROI, you know, is usually in the 50 to hundred percent range um, or more. So it's a really good thing. Same with attics. You know, if you're losing a lot of heat through the cap of the building, putting in cellulose or another material up in the attic uh, and just doing basic air sealing, you know, in those two places, this is really mm-hmm. key.
2: And is there is there a year of construction where where we really see uh, maybe practices change where you say, okay, you know, after this year insulation pretty good before this, it was pretty bad. I mean, is there kind of a, a time where that became more common practice?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I mean, certainly the last sixty or seventy years where we've seen fiberglass insulation you know come into common use, but it's actually pretty rare to find buildings that don't have at least a gesture at that because it's a very easy retrofit. You know, any homeowner can just go to their local hardware store, buy a couple rolls, you know, fiberglass and roll them out up in an attic. It's not a very Mm -hmm. technical exercise, but the key is that they're, they're often not air sealed. So there'll be penetrations in that attic all over the place. And, Insulation doesn't do a lot of good if you got air blowing up, you know, uh, hot mm-hmm. air coming up into your attic. So air sealing it is really a key part as well. And and yeah, generally anything after the 80s, you're probably going to have a pretty decent R value, which is the insulation value in your roof, mm-hmm. walls, and so forth. Pre, you know, 80s, 90s, you're you're rolling the dice. <laughs> sure, sure. And and so you talked
2: about kind of the like for a single family homeowner, you roll a few, uh, roll a few rolls of insulation out. What about it, like from a larger scale on like a hundred unit apartment building? Uh, let's say like, like what would be a solution there to, to come in and retrofit?
1: Yeah. Um, it's usually the same materials. Um, you know, spray foam and blown in cellulose are probably going to be the two best, you know, sort of tools in your toolkit. Spray mm-hmm. foam has a really high, you know, R value per inch. Um, it, it also air seals by itself, which is great. And it's very good for very limited spaces where if you need to you know, do the sheathing on the top side of the roof or something like that, but it's a little more expensive. You know, there's off-gassing of chemicals, which can impact occupancy when that happens. Um, cellulose is very cheap, very environmentally friendly, very benign. It's basically just newspaper and boric acid. Um, and it, it does a great job of insulation, but you need a deck to be able to blow it into, you know, it just sits on top. Yeah. 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 And you need to air seal, you know, before that and kind of prep it, but there's a lot of companies that'll do that. I have DIY it. It's very messy. I wouldn't do it again. I'm not (laughs) great at it, but it's totally doable. You go to you know Lowe's home Depot, rent the machine for a day, and you can save a couple thousand bucks.
2: Gotcha. Very cool. And can you talk a little bit about, um, you mentioned some government incentives, maybe some grants or tax credits, different things. I mean, what, what kind of programs can folks uh, tap into as an incentive to do some of this work?
1: Yeah, great question. Um, with insulation, I, I don't know of any federal programs. It's pretty much all like state and regional um, in the Northeast, we have uh, Reggie, the Greenhouse Gas Initiative, and then that gives money to each state that gets parceled out. Um, so in Maine, we have Efficiency Maine, um, you know, which has a lot of incentives for insulation, where you can get like a third to half of your project or more paid for, you know, by these incentives. So it's, it's like applying for scholarships to college. Like you can look around and, and you may find uh, very good programs in your area that are run through different either nonprofit organizations or governments, local or state.
2: Gotcha. Re- really interesting stuff. Is um, what about from uh, like you mentioned solar power uh, at the beginning? And I don't know how fluent you are on on solar power, but I'm just curious about solar as, as an application to save energy, like on an apartment building.
1: Yeah, with all this stuff, I know enough to be dangerous, uh, but I'm not an expert. <laughs> gotcha. So um, I've installed solar in, in in several of our buildings. It's not the lowest hanging fruit. It's something mm. to do in a building where, you know, the landlord is going to be stuck with a very significant electrical bill, or you can pass uh, the savings of solar, you know, on to tenants, and they're going to be sort of paying you back for doing it, essentially. And and there's great ways to do that. But solar has come down tremendously in price. Um, There's still a 26% federal tax credit, you know, for solar. So if you have you know, W-2 type of income or income that, you know, can be offset with tax credits, that's a great way, um, you know, to get a big discount on your solar installations. And, you know, it's a really great uh, technology. I think it looks good on a roof. um, And, you know, they last a long, long time. I mean, the solar panels that were installed in the 70s and 80s are still making power today. So, you know, the ones I've been installing are warrantied, I think, for 25 or 30 years, which tells you a lot about what they expect. You know, to happen there. And they're, you know, certified against 125 mile an hour winds and hail and and so forth. They're supposed to be, you know, pretty bulletproof. And they're covered by all the insurance, you know, homeowners' insurances that you would have. So um, they're a great technology. And you can, you can do the battery backups. And with our new construction, we're actually looking into that. And this gets, you know, a little technical, but you can become what's called a virtual power plant. Where you, uh, by having a large battery backup, can actually get paid by the grid, by energy companies to regulate demand. Um, mm-hmm. And so, if all of our, you know, apartment buildings, heat pumps, and water heaters, and so forth, are connected, you know, to our own little, you know, smart grid, let's call it, we can throttle those up and down, or a company working with us can, and we can basically get paid to not use as much AC during peak times, you know, and turn the unit off for five minutes at a time and then turn it back on. doesn't affect resident comfort, doesn't, you know, really impact the temperature in the unit, but it just helps utility companies manage their peak loads um, and it helps buildings, you know, do more of their heating and, you know, in times when the energy is cheap, heating of water, you know, stuff, stuff like that. It doesn't have to be at a given time necessarily. So, I think there's really exciting things happening, you know, with building energy and building technology that mm-hmm. are just in the very early stages of getting implemented, but when they're implemented, it's, it's going to be really huge and it helps diversify, um, you know, the electric grid and, and, you know, the way that power is distributed.
2: Yeah, really cool. And and I definitely will dig into that. Is there anything on the, uh, the already built side, any, any other tips or things you would tell folks to focus on?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. I would watch out for windows um, if they're old wooden windows that could have lead in them. I, you know, I always replace those with vinyl, but if you already have vinyl windows, you know, the the return on investment in going for like a Pella or an Anderson model in a rental unit, unless you're really class a kind of high end is not there. Um, Mm -hmm. So even though you would think that a leaky window or a 10 year old window is something you should replace um, most times you're going to get much better bang for your buck. Through insulation, through heat pumps, basic air sealing, stuff like that.
2: Gotcha. And how about w- water conservation? Um, you know, low flow toilets, low, low flow shower heads, thing, things like that. It, um, I just, any comments on, on the water side yeah. of things?
1: Oh yeah, I have literally flushed money down the toilet. I mean not dollar bills, but <laughs> when toilets run, man, uh your water bill goes through the roof. You really yeah. need to get on top of those quickly. I can water attest to that. Yeah. Yeah, we we may all have been there. Um and, and they don't they there's no mercy. I mean that sewer department is not going to like cut you slack because you didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. Anytime you find the old three or five gallon toilets, get them out of there, get them out of there, put in the low flow 1.28 gallons. I like the dual flush, you know, where you can do even less for, you know, pee and yep. more for uh, number two, um, you know, tenants, residents like it a lot. It, you know, it's a nice kind of feel good amenity, um, aerators on faucets again it's not a sexy thing but like that will save you real money over time and it's a huge roi on just making sure that your shower heads are low flow you know aerators on faucets low flow toilets um you know just checking on all the appliances in in your units that use water and making sure they're they're just checking those basic boxes but it all adds up over time and if you can take you know big building water bill from 10 grand a month to five or two um, that's real money in urine investors pockets.
2: Yeah. I mean, absolutely. And some of those things are shower heads, you know, aerators, those are simple. I mean, those don't cost hardly anything to, to go and put in. Right. Um, any, any, have you ever run into issues, um, though with, I mean, I guess I've heard stories of lack of pressure, you know, you know, and people having, uh, You know, uh, their drain lines back up and and things like that because you you lower that that flow too little. Have you ever run into anything like that?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I think there was some bad technology out there like ten and twenty years ago, like the first kind of era of low flow toilets. But Mm -hmm. now, I mean, those things could flush a squirrel. I mean, they are really powerful. (laughs) (laughs) So you know, I they're much better. They have better pressure than the things they're replacing you know, the old three and gotcha. five toilets, um, yep. you know, those, they just waste water and they don't flush as effectively. So, you know, watch your brands. I, you know, I always kind of defer to plumbers, you know, and, and yeah, if the plumber wants to use moan or standard or, or whatever, you know, from home Depot or Lowe's and not this or that, I mean, I would defer to them, whatever they're going to be doing fewer repair calls on, you know, not fixing flappers constantly and so forth. Um, you know, I would go with those units
2: very good and if you ever need to flush a squirrel call dave he's got a toilet for you
1: (laughs) yeah give you the give you the product specs on that
2: yeah no i I appreciate you digging in there a little with us because i mean it it, i think these these simple money saving things are are great for any investor no matter the size of the property and and even you know some people will say well you know we're doing a rub system we're charging utilities back to the residents anyway but I, I think there's there's still an aspect of affordability, right? If you if you can show that, you know, by living at your property versus another property, their utility bill is going to be significantly cheaper, right? That's that's an incentive, and there's just the the positive impact on the environment overall, right? And and as we think about like. ESG investing, and, and, and as a buzzword as this is now, the environment, the social, and the government, or governance, the, uh, the environmental piece, piece is big, and, and people are really starting to care more and more about
1: that as well. Yeah, the, the beauty is that you can do well by doing good in real estate. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can do the right thing, and it will earn you more money. And, and that's, you know, I think, true in the larger business context. You know, as, as a former management consultant, I'm sure you identify with just efficiency, Like we need to be more efficient and you'll do better. Love efficiency, Very direct (laughs) correlation with profit and that, you know, efficiency with resources is what it's all about. So it's not a, uh, it doesn't need to be ethical or philosophical. It can be very uh, kind of hard-nosed business reasons for doing the right thing. Plus these things are all amenities, you know, nicer shower heads, nicer faucets, heat pumps. Mm -hmm. Like these are amenities that residents want and they appreciate. So it's not as though it's a window dressing or something that, you know, gets lost in the rub system, but you certainly, you know, you have a very different incentive again, if, if they're paying the utility or you are, I mean, that, that will change the speed and the quality with which you might do things.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, no, I mean, it's great perspective though. And, uh, yeah, it's very good. So I want to switch over. I want to talk about some of the new, the new stuff though, because you said you're doing some some new development, and you're obviously thinking about some pretty cutting edge things. So I want to hear about
1: some of that. Yeah, I've been learning a lot. Um, my partner Jason Lord uh, has done over twelve syndications of new construction. He's an expert. He's an architect as well as a developer. So uh, I'm lucky to be you know the the rookie playing with the veteran here. But uh, some of the things, you know, that I've learned about in in that are just like going for larger uh, window sizes and getting natural light into units is a huge amenity, huge plus, good for energy efficiency as well. Uh, I mean, windows aren't as good of an insulation as a wall, but in terms of quality of life, that's huge. And that translates to rent, to occupancy, and the things that really matter, you know, in new construction. Um, looking at the total energy profile of the building can sometimes let you uh, violate code. So you can have maybe less R value in your wall as long as your building is performing at a certain level, if you're doing an energy model on that building. And a lot of developers don't think about that or don't do it. They just kind of mindlessly follow all the rules. And mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that your building is more efficient because last time I checked heat rises, it doesn't explode out the side of walls. Uh, so, uh, generally if you're over insulating your cap, you know, in the top of your building and you're making sure there's no air penetrations, um, that will give you a really good performance. And you can use something like the passive house standards, um, you know, or the living building standards, which are both like very aggressive, uh, very impressive, you know, guidelines and, and standards basically to construct on. It's a little hard for like market rate, you know, housing where every penny and dollar really matters. It's ironically almost easier for low income housing and for subsidized projects to mm-hmm. pursue and achieve, you know, lead certification, passive house, and those sort of certifications, because in the market rate, we can do the same things they are doing, but, um, to get the certification you need to pay engineers 80 grand and you need to pay your architect right. an extra 80 grand and 160 right. grand in a 50 or 100 unit project that's real money that starts to mm-hmm. add up and all it really is is marketing and i'm a tree hugging environmentalist saying that you know the thing that matters is not the certification it's doing what the certification wants you to do right. um you know for the impact it'll have because if that building can have a better noi over the course of its operating life. I mean, that's a huge, huge deal on the appraisal. Um, You know, if you can demonstrate, you know, better operating margins in a building, that's a really big deal.
2: Right. So, so some of the same, uh, you know, obviously insulation, low hanging fruit. I mean, we've heard that on both sides of the fence. So we focus on insulation, window sizes, uh, which is, I, I think, interesting. I mean, yeah, one, just aesthetically people want Big windows. They want to be able to have, you know, have that uh, experience and feel like you're outside right but also bringing light in you to do less electricity. What what else are you guys thinking about as you look at new developments.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm a on a anti carpet mission, and I want everyone listening to rip all their carpets out and get rid of them. Um, no, I mean that's actually pretty wasteful. So use them until they're <laughs> fully fully depreciated, shall we say, stained and, you know, ready to go. Yep. But if you're doing new construction, for heaven's sakes, don't install carpet. It is uh, usually uh, full of chemicals that are off-gassing, creating, you know, VOCs and other toxic compounds. It's only going to last you a year or 5 years at most before it looks really bad. Yeah, um, I don't know any carpet that lasts
2: it. 5 years in a rental we're going through it every year or two.
1: Oh yeah. It absorbs odors and allergens and dust. And it's, if, if tenants want to put in their own throw rugs and so forth in their bedrooms, I mean, absolutely knock yourself out. But uh, as a landlord, you want something hard on the surface, which means wood, bamboo, tile, luxury, vinyl, plank, tile. Those are, you know, all acceptable, good materials to use depending on, you know, the kind of units you're trying to create um you know so go with something that's going to last in your flooring cuz the price is not that different um but the operating efficiency of something hard uh, really matters and in a- carpet. absolutely is, is, yeah. absolutely <laughs> and, and for- i
2: completely agree with you and, and a good friend of mine actually owns a flooring company and we were just talking about this cuz he he's a huge prop- proponent of of hard flooring in uh in apartments as well the pushback that you inevitably always get though is you know if somebody's above you and it's a hard surface you're walking on you're going to hear the footprints and all these things but I know even from just talking to my friend that I mean that's something that's changed a lot in the past couple years too of just the materials you can put between the flooring you know and to to be able to mute that uh, whether it's cork or, or other other substances but I know that's gotten a lot better
1: Exactly. In old buildings, you know, where the people who complain about this live. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's nothing but plywood and, you know, framing between you guys in new yeah. buildings, you must design them to be, you know, insulated with sound and your architects, or, or even in bigger projects, like specific sound engineers are going to mm-hmm. be doing that. And so no, no, you shouldn't hear people walking. I mean, if they're having a you know big fight or playing loud music or whatever, you might hear something, but, um, yeah, new buildings should not be transferring that low level of noise through the floors.
2: Yeah, and, and just very practically, I mean, the, the life of of like an LVT versus carpet, I mean, it, it's, it's 5, 7X, you know, what what carpet is and really saves you a lot of time on turns, time and cost on turns. Yeah. And, and you know that now it's not only the cost, but it's the downtime and the lost revenue uh, that matters when you're turning over units. So the faster you can do it, the better you're going to be
1: totally. I think your, your flooring friend could speak to this better than I, but, um, when it comes to LVT, which is a very popular material, I'm seeing a lot of it, um, don't buy the cheapest ones. Cause it really, it's bad, yeah. you know, like you don't yeah. want that. It feels kind of papery almost when you're walking on it. You want the ones that either have an underlayment or you get a nice underlayment for it. You know, they're only two or three bucks a foot. It's not that different from the ones that are like 150 or 126, but um, you know, they have a lot more millimeters of actual plank so they can take cleaning and rubbing and traffic and still show their grain and so forth for a long time. So the quality really matters. And for heaven's sakes, don't use laminate because it's not waterproof. And so anytime you're getting spills or stuff on it, mm-hmm. it's going to be degrading pretty quickly.
2: Yeah, those, those are fantastic tips. Well, this is this is super interesting. Any anything else from the uh the, the world that, that we should be exploring uh as as real estate owners?
1: Yeah, I think um in the the COVID world. Um, if you're if you're designing big multifamily, you need to think about the plague. You know, you need to think about air filtration, um, and being and that's a real marketing element right now. And all the people that are young during COVID, they're, they're going to pay attention to which building has you know HEPA filtration or you know those kind of things. So yeah. I think uh, thinking about your your air in a building has taken on. In, you know, increased importance, whether it's retrofitting existing buildings or new construction. Um, And I think that that's really key to look at, you know, and we're thinking about, you know, doing HRV systems for retrofits now, you know, where we're getting cold air coming in, exchanging the heat out of it. So it's not as much of a loss and getting fresh air into buildings is a really important feature.
2: Gotcha. And so is it, are you looking at like with with a heat pump system, actually having like individual, heating and cooling for each unit versus a shared ducted system? Is that, is that the way to go? It, it all depends.
1: Um, you know, ducting is kind of a controversial topic. Like I personally kind of hate it. Um, and I would rather just have the head of the heat pump blowing out the air into the unit and just tell people to leave their doors open, but ducting can look really nice if you do it right. Um, or it can be concealed, you know, in walls and stuff, but it can also carry in dust. I mean, it depends on what, you know, air it's using. Um, you don't want to be recirculating air, you know, with your ductwork, if you can avoid that. Um, you know, so I, I prefer the, point of source, you know, heaters, you know, where the heat pump is blowing out the heat, but you can use VTAC units, you know, in in large multifamily with ductwork. you know, we're designing that in our multifamily building. So I think there's more than one way to, you know, skin the cat in that regard. And uh, it just depends on what's the right fit for the building and for the market. You know, if if tenants are really expecting ductwork in the South where cooling is really key versus in the North where it's not, you know, as important, that, that all depends.
2: Absolutely, no, great point. Well, awesome, Dave. This is a, this has been very informational. I've I've learned a ton, and uh, I think some things I can take back to my own projects. Uh, before I, I let you get going, I, I want to take you through our keys to success round. There's four questions I want to ask you. The first one is. Uh, and, and you've been in these shoes as a passive investor and investing uh, with your friend, it sounds like. So if you're going, if you were going to make an investment with, with a deal sponsor, with a syndicator, you can only ask one question. What is that
1: one question? Um, what really motivates you in life? And if the answer has anything to do with money, I would probably walk away from that syndicator um, because to me, I want people who are doing this for other reasons. Like they love the architecture. They love the community. They love the building process. And uh, that you're investing in a person. You're not investing in the building. You know, you're investing in the leadership team of the syndication group. And you want those people to be good people who are going to be honest and hardworking and, and so forth. And if I, I feel like if they're just in it for the money and it's purely a business proposition and situation... Um, there, there's more propensity for things to go wrong because <laughs> th- your interests aren't quite as aligned as you might think they are in that case.
2: Yeah, I think that's a great answer. What are you most proud of in your career?
1: Um, giving uh, refugees to this country uh, their first homes, their first starts. Uh, to me, that's the American dream. It's coming here with nothing. Um, and and getting a place to live, getting jobs, you know, working your butt off and and paying your rent. Um, there's nothing cooler to me than seeing uh, new Americans uh, or people who are homeless get their lives together in my units because we were willing to give them a chance.
2: Oh, that's awesome.
1: What's a book that everybody should read? Um, Investment Biker by Jim Rogers is not your. T- typical rich dad, poor dad recommendation. Um, but it's a great book. Uh, he was, uh, George Soros's investment partner. And then he just took like a year and a half off to go, you know, motorcycling with his girlfriend through like Eurasia, (laughs) like all across Soviet union down through Africa, just incredible stories, but all linked with business and investing kind of wisdom, uh, really entertaining, uh, great read.
2: Oh, awesome. Check that out. And Lastly, what is your number one key to success?
1: Um, I think it's honesty and and just trying to do the right thing. Um, you know, if I find myself getting tempted by the shiny object or money or, or something like that more than just kind of putting in the hard work to to do things right, I often am led astray. so that that would be it. You know, just trying to be true to yourself, be honest to your investors, to your team. Um, and you know, don't pretend you have all the answers.
2: Yeah. I think it's critical to success and can be difficult sometimes, especially when when you have investors, right. To to admit that that you don't have all the answers.
1: Yeah. You want to come off like a (laughs) know-it-all, but, but actually like these investors, they'll spot a phony a mile away. You know, and so Mm -hmm. if you you try to pretend you know more than you do, you have more experience than you do, you know, those kind of things. They they would rather invest in someone who's genuine about being a beginner than they would in someone who's kind of inauthentic, even though they have more experience.
2: Yeah, I think that's that's fantastic advice and. I think it's a great place to, to wrap up. Dave, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. If, if folks want to want to get in touch with you or want to learn more about what you're doing, how can they reach you?
1: Yeah, they should uh, uh, give me a call You know, on my personal cell phone, 207-517-5700. They can email me at dave at holmanhomes.com. And our website is holmanhomes.com. So we'd love to talk to anyone who's interested in passive investing and Uh, wish your viewers and listeners a great day.
2: Awesome. Well, thank you, Dave. And you have a great day as well. And thank you for coming on the show. All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Ritter on Real Estate. Hit the subscribe button to make sure you don't miss out on the content that will make you a better investor. Also visit KentRitter.com for articles, videos, and tools curated just for passive investors. Until next time, this is Kent Ritter with Ritter on Real Estate. Now go out and invest like a pro.